I'm Jonathan Green. This is Lost and Found, and this week, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It is a complex place, a place of many, many layers of conflict, of capture, uh, recapture. A place that bears the scars of an epic history. If you know where to look, of course. Indeed, perhaps the most defining feature of the city of Jerusalem, paradoxically, is in fact not always visible. When I think about the built city of Jerusalem in a kind of, you know, longer term historical sense, there's a way in which it's important to think not just about what you're seeing in front of you when you're walking the city streets, it's also what you're not seeing. Adina Hoffman, essayist, critic, and author of Till We Have Built Jerusalem, Architects of a New City. You know, I'm somebody, I, I love to walk and I love to look and to see what I'm seeing, the buildings and the people and all that. But it's a slightly deceptive thing to do in Jerusalem because much of what is around you is not visible. It's, it, you know, this is a city that has been basically captured and recaptured something like 44 times, I think, is the most recent count over the course of its history. And almost every power or army or civilization that conquered Jerusalem made a point of destroying certain things and building other things on top of those things that they destroyed. And on the one hand, that makes for a very rich, wonderful history and incredibly complicated, just, it's it's what makes Jerusalem so fascinating. But it also means that much of what meets the eye is, is not what has been. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always think that it's critical to think about what you're not seeing at the same time that you think about what you're seeing, which is to say that when you talk about sort of what has been built in Jerusalem, you also have to think about what's been destroyed. Well, I wonder too, is there a counter impulse to that thing of the conqueror to construct? Is is there a counter impulse of defensiveness, of an architecture of, of anxiety, of, of paranoia? Oh, Oh, absolutely. That's pretty much the history of Jerusalem architecture. I mean, some very beautiful things have come of that um, in the sense that you could say, for instance, the Dome of the Rock, which is a beautiful building. And then you look at it now and everyone admires the tiling on the walls. Well, the tiling is actually the product of a certain uh, Ottoman defensiveness against what had come before, which was a mosaic. (laughs) Um, So some of it is beautiful. But I think one of these other dichotomies that I you know, I feel like I have to say when I talk about Jerusalem is that it's an incredibly beautiful city. It's also one of the ugliest places on the planet. And and I don't just mean (laughs) physically, I mean, psychically ugly in the sense that what people do to people there is intensely ugly, or it can be, it's not only ugly, but it can be. And what people do to people in in the sense of buildings is also very ugly. It can be ugly. You know, Buildings are weapons in Jerusalem often, so that buildings and neighborhoods are built to make a point to create facts on the ground. Other other neighborhoods and buildings are bulldozed uh, to make other points so that there's that. And then there's the anxiety of wanting to, yes, to build, to build, to show that we're here, that we have a presence. And sometimes that results in the kind of beauty of the Dome of the Rock, but sometimes it results in the most hideous kinds of fortresses that are simply put up to exert a kind of political presence. And that is ugliness, I think, uh, kind of in the deepest sense, both both physical and psychic.
So what then is it like to, to arrive in this city as an outsider? What is one to make of the ways in which Jerusalemites have, have found and failed to find ways to live together of the beauty and the ugliness, the cruelty and also the richness of this ancient place. It's a city that it always beckons you, it always challenges you, you never quite master it. We lived there for six years and every time you think you understand Jerusalem, it's like the most complicated personal relationship. Every time you think you know this city, you learn something new and realise that your previous conceptions of it were probably not right. John Lyons is a journalist, author of Balcony Over Jerusalem. After six years reporting from the city, he became something of a devotee. It's, I think, the most interesting city in the world for me. I first went there with my wife about 20 years ago, and it was a, a Friday night. And we were walking through the old city of Jerusalem and we saw hundreds of ultra-Orthodox Jews walking through the little uh, cobblestone laneways of the old city, rushing towards the Western Wall or the Kotel. And it was a warm evening and it was a, the, the full moon was rising. And we stood in the old city and we watched thousands of people praying at the Western Wall and then the chant of the mosques just behind that. Of course, they're both sandwiched together in the old city and we were completely mesmerised by Jerusalem. Do you get an instant sense of that complexity and, and that, that deep sense of past? Well, you do. I mean, when you walk around the old city, there's the Christian quarter, the Jewish quarter, the Armenian quarter, the the sheer architecture of it. You have the, the, the old the French nuns who are studying and you have the, the students studying the Torah. Um, and you'll have the, the young Muslims rushing through to go to the Muslim part of the city, and you'll see them rushing by each other. And the thing about Jerusalem is they may be the, the young Israeli soldiers or the young Muslim youths might be in conflict in the afternoon. You go into towards the old city of Jerusalem it can explode without warning in terms of, of clashes between Palestinians and Israeli soldiers. And then if you go the same way, you walk the same route an hour later, if, if tourists came to have a coffee, they would have had no idea that an hour before there was this ancient, brutal conflict um, had come, had seen, had gone, and now people were just sitting around having coffee and playing backgammon, you know? It's that mm. sort of place. So what does the complexity of this city do for cuisine? What kind of food culture emerges out of such a collision of religious, ethnic and cultural identity? If one man can answer that question, it's Sammy Tamimi. He's a chef. He's the author of Philistine and co-author with Yotam Ottolinghi of Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, it's a melting pot and Jerusalem was kind of a, a centre of you know, so many nations from French to, to you name it. I mean, there's also quarters, Jews, uh, Christian and Muslims. Uh, and they all kind of got influenced by other countries and other cuisines near nearby. And it goes far to um, India and Persia. Mm. I mean, like, uh, for, for, I grew up eating these uh, cauliflower fritters that my mom used to make 
and give us for, for you know stuff it in a pita and give it to us to take to school and they're very much like the Indian pakoras even the spiciness of it you know it's got mm. turmeric and cumin and a bit of cinnamon and a bit of chili so it definitely kind of comes from this part of the world and yesterday I was eating um, uh, Iraqi dolmas I just ordered a takeaway from this local place that I know here in, in London and it's very much like the one that I grew up eating so you know you do a whole circle, but you, you kind of realize that actually there's quite a lot of uh, borrowing from each country. Famously, you and, and Yota Motilingi wrote the book together, Jerusalem, and Correct. that was a place that neither of you had lived in for almost two decades. What was the difference? Yeah. When, you, when you went back in that, that rediscovery, the pair of you, your Jerusalem and Yotam's Jerusalem, how were they different? We lived in two parts. I mean, Yotam lived in, in West Jerusalem and I lived in East Jerusalem. People from West Jerusalem came to East Jerusalem for the food, for the markets, for, you know, kind of holy sites and all that. And we, di we didn't go so much to West Jerusalem. It's just because it didn't really have anything to attract us. And, you know, we, we kind of, the food uh, also seen in the 70s where we when we were kids it all kind of surrounded around you know the old city and the uh, market where it's just kind of few local places nowadays obviously things change and we have a lot more restaurants and uh, places to eat and there's basically um something for everybody uh, i wanted to also say that you know in the 70s it, it was just af after the war there was kind of sense of hope and sense of uh, uh, it's almost like naivety in there that everything is going to be actually okay. Nowadays, things gone quite bad. So people are kind of a little bit more, more cautious uh, than, than, than uh, when we lived there. And in Jerusalem, perhaps more than anywhere else, optimism and pessimism, hope and despair are held in constant tension. And those dualities are expressed not just in the food, but in the fabric of the built city itself. Adina Hoffman. Dichotomies prevail there. There's always like, it's beautiful, it's ugly, it's wonderful, it's exhausting. It's what you see, it's what you don't see. But the thing that has interested me the most and that I've written about has been the modern city of Jerusalem. And it's important to understand, and I think a lot of people maybe don't know this, that basically the kind of historical city, the sacred city, the holy city that people think of when they think of Jerusalem is something that is entirely contained within a wall that existed up until the late 19th century. That was Jerusalem, was everything in that wall. So that all of these holy sites, you know, the, the Western Wall, which is what remains of the destroyed temple and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Dome of the Rock, that's all inside the walls as are all kinds of other mosques and synagogues and churches and places where people lived and markets. But it was really only in the late 19th century that the city sort of burst its banks. And that happened in 1867, which is a year that no one ever mentions. Everyone's always talking about 1967. But 1867 is the year when the Ottoman Sultan forcibly conscripted bands of Palestinian peasants to pave a road from what is known as the Jaffa Gate in what's now called the old city of Jerusalem, it was just the city then, to the port of Jaffa. And this 
road basically allowed access to pilgrims and goods and it opened the city out to the world and as soon as that road was paved the city kind of burst out and a whole market erupted around the walls and then that road the Jaffa road leading to the port of Jaffa became the main street of Jerusalem what is now West Jerusalem and it was along that road that the city evolved so that's one date and the other date that I think it's critical to mention is 1918 which is basically late 1970 the British entered Jerusalem. They took it over from the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War One, And soon after that, a kind of enlightened, horrible, wonderful man named Ronald Storrs, who was the military governor, made a law that everything in Jerusalem had to be built in stone. And it's a, a material that everyone was using for many this in millennia, but he made it official. You had to build in the stone so that now, and this is still a law that holds today, everything must be built in stone. So when you see Jerusalem, it's a very chaotic city, but everything is basically made of the same material, which gives it this wonderful coherence and what would otherwise be very incoherent. Jerusalem by Mahmoud Dawish, translated by Fadi Judah. In Jerusalem, and I mean within the ancient walls, I walk from one epoch to another without a memory to guide me. The prophets over there are sharing the history of the holy, ascending to heaven and returning less discouraged and melancholy because love and peace are holy and are coming to town. I was walking down a slope and thinking to myself, how do the narrators disagree over what light said about a stone? Is it from a dimly lit stone that wars flare up? I walk in my sleep. I stare in my sleep. I see no one behind me. I see no one ahead of me. All this light is for me. I walk. I become lighter. I fly. Then I become another, transfigured. Words sprout like grass from Isaiah's messenger mouth. If you don't believe, you won't be safe. I walk as if I were another, and my wound a white biblical rose, and my hands like two doves on the cross hovering and carrying the earth. I don't walk, I fly, I become another, transfigured, no place and no time. So who am I? I am no I in Ascension's presence. But I think to myself, alone, the Prophet Muhammad spoke classical Arabic. And then what? Then what? A woman soldier shouted, is that you again? Didn't I kill you? I said, you killed me. And I forgot, like you, to die. Conflict in the city, of course, finds expression everywhere in all kinds of forms. But in Jerusalem, it's Friday night. Any given Friday night where encounter or collision invariably take place. John Lyons. 
Friday, about 11 in the morning, I'd go onto my balcony and I'd check the valley below me, which was really where sort of uh, East Jerusalem met West Jerusalem. East Jerusalem is predominantly the Arab Muslim population, the Palestinian population, and West Jerusalem is predominantly Jewish population. And we lived between the two. And I'd look into this valley, and if you saw a helicopter flying in circles, what that meant, an Israeli army helicopter, it meant that there was conflict over there in that part of the city. And my wife and I, she's a photographer, we'd whack on the flak jackets if we had to and put their helmets in the boot of the car and we'd drive to where the helicopter was to see what was going on over there. If there was a blimp, the Israeli army has a blimp that has incredible sort of cameras on it. If the blimp was flying, you knew it was really serious. It wasn't just the the run of the mill daily Friday conflict. And these things, I went to many of them and I spent time with the Israeli soldiers on one side and then the following week I'd be with the Palestinians and, you know, I tried to really get into the minds of both sides of that conflict. But then, bizarrely, about two o'clock almost on the dot, it it would dissipate. They would all, Hmm. you know, stop firing tear gas, stop throwing stones and then head off. And for another week it was over. And then there'd be this three or four hours of hiatus on a Friday I'd go off and file my yarns and write my stories or whatever for for back in Australia. And then about 5.30 in the afternoon, 6 o'clock, the Shabbat siren would sound across Jerusalem and you'd hear this, this huge siren, which is to usher in the beginning of the Sabbath. And then in our building, we had some Jewish neighbours in, in the courtyard below us, and they would all come out and all stand together with their, their prayer books and t- look towards the Western Wall, the Kotel, which we could see in the old city, and they would start praying towards the, the Western Wall. And then about 20 minutes later, there were many mosques in the valley below us. The green lights of the mosque would come on and you'd hear the, the Muslim call to prayer, the chant of Allahu Akbar across the valley. And, and there were so many mosques that weren't completely in unison that you'd hear this crescendo of Allahu Akbar. But you'd also hear the Jewish prayer from our neighbours below. And then as if to say, don't forget us, the Christians who are down to 2% of the population now in Jerusalem, the Christian bells from the old city would start ringing. And my wife and I would sit enchanted on our balcony, hearing the battle of the sounds, these three monotheistic religions who all happen to claim this part of this tiny little area as central to their religions, as crucial to, to their three religions, all battling it out. And this would go on sometimes for hours. And then come at 10 o'clock at night, the, the, the quiet would descend again across Jerusalem. And I used to sit there, my wife and I would often sit on the balcony having a glass of wine and just think, wow, you wouldn't get this anywhere <laughs> else in the world, you know. And then on Yom Kippur, the, the, the Day of Atonement, uh, the holiest day in the Jewish faith, dead silence over the whole city. They'd block off um, roads and so forth. And the Palestinian village below us, would go dead quiet. Um, And so you get sort of drawn into these incredible rituals. What is it then like to to leave a place like that and and to live in cities that that don't have that that deep sense of investment? 
Um, it was a shock for me to go from six years of, you know, you wake up on a Sunday morning and you talk to the news desk and it's possible that Israeli is go, Israel's going to launch a, an attack on Iran's nuclear facilities, you know, not a bad story. Um, and that'll get you the, the lead for the world section. And then I came back to Australia and the news desk said, oh, you know, Bill Shorten's doing this. Can you go and cover his speech at the, you know, the Chamber of Commerce or something? So at a professional level, it's certainly a surprise. And the thing about the Middle East, I travelled to Iran and Iraq and Libya and Morocco and all over the place um, and uh, during the Arab Spring, saw the dictators fall one by one. I saw Gaddafi lying dead on a meat refrigerator in in. Libya with a bullet hole in his head. So you see all of this experience. I, I was in Gaza during the war, an Israeli bomb dropped 50 metres from me, the hotel I was staying at. Um, and you leave that and there's a sense of, of sadness um, that this place is not really solving its problems. Um, you know, there are help. You always sort of green shoots and always useful signs. But but at the end of the day, you know, unless the people from different religions and different backgrounds can actually respect the other one, and I know it sounds perhaps trite, but if they don't respect each other at the end of the day, peace agreements won't mean a lot. Now, our time in Jerusalem is sadly coming to an end, but it would be remiss of us not to at least touch on the, the hummus question. <laughs> Sammy Tamimi, where does one find the best? In the old city, there are two places that I personally always go. A place called Abu Shukri, which is in the old city. Uh, actually, both of them in the old city. Abu Shukri is a, a well-known uh, establishment. It's been going for many, many years. They are very nice people. Um, they do really good hummus, but uh, it's a little bit uh, on the touristy side, if you don't mind that. And the other place is called Lina. Lina, it's um, in the Christian quarter. It's a little bit more um, laid back, and you can actually soak the... the the local atmosphere and that uh, I means they are super nice to to everybody yeah so these two places i i would just recommend to go to. and if we're going to sum up jerusalem in one or two dishes hummus aside what would they be look i grew up in the old city so i'm gonna go for the old city although if you uh, travel to um, uh, jerusalem don't miss the markets first of all you know both sides the west and the east but uh, definitely one of them is the uh, Jerusalem sesame bread. We call it kayak, which is, uh, it's not bagel. <laughs> it's uh, kind of um, long sesame. It's really delicious. In the morning, you just pick one and they give you uh, a little uh, piece of paper with salt and zatar. And you can, add, you can add falafel and oven baked eggs and this is best breakfast or just snack you just eat it on the way to somewhere that's one thing the other thing i would just go to if you know what knafe is knafe is like a filo shredded filo with a layer of cheese and it's all deranged with uh, orange blossom syrup it's absolutely delicious it's very super rich 
you need a gallon of cold water after that because <laughs> it's so sweet. But it's so nice. And just kind of stop it. There's a place called Jafar in the old city. You just go there, sit down, have it, and go to the, the kind of next door and have a kind of uh, a little Arabic strong coffee. You've been listening to Lost and Found this week on Jerusalem. You heard Adina Hoffman, SAS critic, author of Till We Have Built Jerusalem, Architects of a New City. John Lyons, journalist. He spent six years reporting in Jerusalem and is author of Balcony Over Jerusalem. Omar Saker, poet, reading In Jerusalem by Mahmoud Darwish. And Sami Tamimi, author of Palestine and co-author with Yotam Otalingi of Jerusalem. Producers Amira Adlegilis and Lisa DeVisi. Technical production Brendan O'Neill. I'm Jonathan Green. Mm-hmm.